What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. And the framing of Janet Lee in the center of the frame with top of the steering wheel and the bottom of the frame. Because you can make a choice. You can go above the steering wheel. Janet Lee in a car, that's got to be psycho. You've been doing your reading, Josh. Gold star. That's Martin Scorsese talking about psycho in Hitchcock Truffaut, a documentary about one of the most influential movie books of all time. So a movie about a book that talks about psycho. Stay with me here, Josh. On this week's show, my conversation with the director of Hitchcock Truffaut, critic Kent Jones, plus our own top five movie books. That and more. My book better be on your list. You know, I'm not done with it, but still. Ahead on Film Spotting. This episode of Film Spotting is brought to you by Vermont College of Fine Art. The Vermont College of Fine Art MFA in Film offers a two-year student-designed, project-driven graduate program of professional mentorships for your scripts, fiction, and nonfiction filmmaking, and hybrid and transmedia projects. Exciting, affordable, and intense. Refine your creative vision as you develop intensely personal stories in an independent practice. Visit vcfa.edu slash film. And only appropriate for an episode devoted to movie books. This episode of Film Spotting is also brought to you by Audible.com. Audible.com is a leading provider of audiobooks with more than 180,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. Audiobooks are great to listen to when you're doing all the sorts of activities Film Spotting listeners find themselves doing, whether you're driving, stuck in traffic, if you're on the subway, bus, just doing chores around the house, or even at the gym. For our audience members, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. And I have two that I believe I've recommended before, but they are perfectly in keeping with our top five movie books this week. Five came back from Mark Harris. Mark might just get a mention in my top five list, and Five Came Back is his most recent book that I've already downloaded to Audible, Josh, and just need to find time to finish. As well, you can find Patton Oswalt's Silver Screen Fiend. To download either of those books or another book of your choice for free, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash filmspotting. That's audiblepodcast.com slash filmspotting. You're listening to film spotting. Of course, you learn to watch the movies by watching them. But the best film writers can help you really see them or at least see them in a new way, which means you do occasionally have to read a little bit. Later in the show, Josh and I will share our top five film books, the books that made the biggest impression on us in our ongoing film educations. First, though, let's talk about a book that made an impression on the likes of Martin Scorsese, Wes Anderson, David Fincher, and countless others, Hitchcock by Francois Truffaut. In the new documentary Hitchcock Truffaut, director Kent Jones tells the story of the book's origins and speaks with some of the book's fans, who also happen to be among the most significant filmmakers working today. It may not exactly have been as momentous as Hitchcock and Truffaut getting together in 62 for their week-long interview, but I sat down with Kent Jones when he was in town with the film during the Chicago International Film Festival. He's a respected film critic and longtime contributor to Film Comment, and in 2013, he was named the director of programming for the New York Film Festival. In 2010, he collaborated with Martin Scorsese on the documentary Letter to Elia about director Elia Kazan. Hitchcock Truffaut is Jones's first feature-length documentary. We're going to hear a bit of the trailer for the film, and then we'll get into my conversation with Kent Jones. 
1966, Francois Truffaut published a series of in-depth conversations with Alfred Hitchcock about his entire body of work. Truffaut, half Hitchcock's age, was already an internationally renowned filmmaker, and he wanted to free Hitchcock from his reputation as a light entertainer. It conclusively changed people's opinions about Hitchcock. It was a director talking about his own work in a way that was utterly unpretentious. You know, they were talking about the craft. Seven days. Seventy setups. And I shot some of it in slow motion. Where it sort of lays out all of the cutting pattern, contextualizing what the work of a director truly is. There was a listener of ours named Nigel Smith in London, and he mentioned that he loved the movie, and I was uh-huh. curious why. And he gave me a few reasons. One of them was, he said, it made me think about some of the Hitchcock films in more depth than I had before, Vertigo mm-hmm. especially. There are also many Hitchcock films I haven't seen, so it was a great prompt to seek out the likes of I Confess and The Wrong Man. Mm-hmm. And then I was left with a real sense of the impact the book had and a greater appreciation of why Hitchcock wasn't just the master of suspense, but a master filmmaker full stop. Yeah. So it seemed to me that that was appropriate because... I figure all three of those were part of the agenda for Truffaut. Were they part of the agenda for you? Yes. For me, of course, I take it for granted that Hitchcock is a master filmmaker. And as most people do, I, I kind of imagine that, like, you know, if I know him, then everybody else must. You know, that happens a lot. And then, of course, you go out and you realize, you talk to a few people and you realize, oh, not everybody knows him. Not everybody's even heard of him. And so I guess that... Those are things in the back of my mind. I didn't make the movie with a kind of a pedagogical frame of mind. That's not me. Mm -hmm. I made the movie because uh, something, there's a desire, you know. I don't like to make movies for reasons other than just I want to make them. Mm -hmm. And so I've been drawn to Hitchcock. I've been watching his films for most of my life. Every time I watch them, they're new. Um, watching them again with my children has been an experience. And I think to kind of like rediscover him through making the film is part of the thing that I wanted to do. And then to look at movies, to extend the conversation between the two of them to other filmmakers is what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I wanted to make a movie about filmmaking and extend the enterprise into the present. Did you have any thoughts about treating it as a little bit more of an equal split between the two? I think you did a really nice job of Mm -hmm. bringing in a lot about Truffaut's background and his personality. It certainly is there, but the book itself, of course, is an exploration of Hitchcock's work through Truffaut. So you followed that model, it seems. Well, there's an interesting comment that this guy made that it just had never occurred to me. It was something, you know, someone mentioned to me, he was doing an interview the other day, and they said, actually the thing that intrigued them about the movie was that it felt like an adaptation of the book. Hmm. And I guess I kind of agree with that. It's something that didn't really occur to me, but I wanted to stay within the framework of the book. So I didn't want any experts and I didn't want actors and actresses and family members and stuff like that. And Truffaut, yeah, his films aren't really part of what the book is. On the other hand, he is. So that's why I wanted to just sort of like create the context Mm -hmm. and just give you a... Uh, a sense of who both guys were going into the room. For whatever reason, it never occurred to me that the original recordings of that conversation still existed. And I wonder if you gave any thought to using that. We get a lot of it in the film to great effect, but did you consider ever using it as just 
the soundtrack, almost building the, the movie around that. Or it sounds like, as you said, because you really wanted it to be an exploration with filmmakers, that probably wasn't part of your thought. My first idea for the movie was to have no narration. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, very early on, I decided I wanted to include directors and have directors extend the conversation, as I said. But I did originally plan to have no narration. There's very little narration in the movie as it is, but I think just, you know, the thing about about it is that we were going to these, I was going to these very elaborate lengths to sort of like set stuff up. And at a certain point, I was talking it over with my editor, Rachel Reichman, who's also the co-producer with whom I've made a lot of movies now. And she said, you know, it's just, it, it simplifies things. You can just do things very quickly and simply that you can't do if you're mm-hmm. trying to like make it work with like a combination of, you know, a Claude Chabrol interview from, you know, the 80s or something like that mixed with Godard, you know, and Truffaut and et cetera, et cetera. And you understand like, why narrative filmmakers use it to the same effect, perhaps. Yes, true. Although in, in a lot of narrative films where modern narrative mm-hmm. films, I'm not talking about older narrative films, but in a lot of modern narrative films, it's used for various reasons. It's used for the effect that it produces, like in Goodfellas and Casino. Age of Innocence is a different kind of narrator. I mean, Marty's very interested Mm -hmm. in narration. You know, there's a poetic effect that's created by narration that wasn't necessarily intended by the people who used it in like a 40s movie where you, you know, like somewhere in the night or something like that. So I think it's a little different. Along those lines, you sometimes get critics bemoaning documentary filmmakers who feel compelled to insert themselves into their work. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that is a valid criticism. In this case, certainly with your background and your expertise, mm-hmm. no one would have begrudged you inserting yourself and your experience with Hitchcock's yeah. films and your experience with the book. You could have been the narrator, of course. Did you ever consider that? And if you didn't, why not? Oh, I don't know. Maybe because I don't like my voice. Maybe because I have a certain amount of inhibitions about my voice because my father was a DJ with a very sonorous <laughs> voice. I probably have more of a baritone than I, I don't know. Also, I didn't really want that, though, I think. I didn't want it to be kind of like me reflecting on, you know. Uh, that That's not quite what I was looking for. I wanted to be in the film in the way that I made it, not in the, in the, in the film yeah. uh, as a presence. Like in Chris Marker, even though he's not reading, he's part of his movies. I didn't want to do that. I was genuinely surprised listening to the audio in the film at how wide-ranging and detailed their conversations were because they did have Helen Scott there. Mm -hmm. They did need someone as an interpreter, and it strikes me that that can. I've done a few of those conversations. It can disrupt things. It can make you speak a little more clipped and abruptly than you would if you were just having a casual conversation. And yet, listening to them, it doesn't seem like it inhibited them at all. They were really able to connect with each other. Well, she did an amazing job. I mean, you know, people said, well, she makes a lot of mistakes. It's like, well, you'd make a lot of mistakes too if you were sitting in a room for eight hours a day five days a week i mean it's just like you know she just she does an incredible job the other thing though and this is not something that you get in the book but hitchcock actually understood french and he spoke it he speaks it pretty badly i mean he speaks it you know i mean he's there's no attempt at a french accent whatsoever however he did understand it i think he spoke german too at least a rudimentary German. And so that certainly helps. I think he's able to understand Truffaut very quickly. Mm-hmm. 
Truffaut really didn't understand English, but she was really like right in there on the spot. Um, sometimes in the tapes, there are things that she gets wrong that are that are kind of you know funny when he's trying to when they're trying to figure out the titles of certain silent films because Truffaut's trying to play the you know what films influenced you when you mm-hmm. were younger thing, and of course for Hitchcock's generation, the question of films influencing you when you were younger is different from yeah. people at Truffaut's generation. So he's like, well, let's see, I saw Dermude Todd, <laughs> you know, and, and there, Truffaut doesn't know what Dermude Todd is because he doesn't know the original title of it. He doesn't know that it's destiny. And so they're just getting things mixed up and, you know. Votre genre de film? Your type of picture? Les genres prennent du plaisir... And they expect to anticipate. I know what's coming next. I have to say, do you? In his uh, letter to Hitchcock soliciting the sit-down, he wrote, there are many directors with a love of cinema, but what you possess is a love of celluloid itself. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's appropriate talking about Hitchcock that I keep coming back to questions about the form, but is it silly at all to wonder why someone so enamored with celluloid Mm -hmm. would choreograph this conversation with his cinematic idol and not shoot it, not shoot it on celluloid. And I say it's, it's silly, of course, because it, it could make it a lot more difficult to pull this whole thing off, yeah. and he probably envisioned it as a book, but there's still a part of me that wonders why someone who loved film as much as he did didn't think to, to capture this. Well, I mean, yeah, but that's a question that could only come from a moment like now when everybody films and records absolutely everything, mm-hmm. and it's very easy. Bringing, you know... 16 millimeter cameras into the room and, you know, recording the entire conversation would have been something very different. I mean, it was a book he was proposing and he wasn't thinking of making a film. It would have turned them into performers too, inevitably, which he wasn't after. Yeah. Right. Yes, that's quite true. And the performance part is in there. You know, whenever Hitchcock told the story about being locked up when he was three, he's performing whenever he says actors are cattle, he's performing Mm -hmm. whenever he talks about being bored on the set because everything's been drawn in advance, he's performing. So there's some of that, but you know, it's at a minimum. Some of the filmmakers we see in the piece, Olivier Asseas, we see David Fincher, Martin Scorsese, of course, Richard Linklater, about 10 directors total. Is that the number? That's right. How did you decide on those 10 that must have been tough certainly you could have found any number of filmmakers and critics who have an adoration for Hitchcock and could have weighed in well I didn't want any critics okay I just wanted filmmakers that's one thing the other thing is I wanted people that I knew were going to that I had a personal connection with in each case I do Mm -hmm. some people more than others I mean you know Marty and I've known each other for 24 years now actually I realize Olivier and and I have known each other for almost that long. Arnaud and I were very close. You know, I worked on one of his movies with him. Mm -hmm. Um, Fincher I know pretty well for about eight years or so. James, Peter. That's one thing. The other thing is that I didn't want people just to sort of like sit there and say, Alfred Hitchcock was great. He had a marvelous sense of the camera and, you know, he understood camera distance. I didn't want want that. Mm -hmm. I wanted a conversation. So, you know, I guess that 
there were other people, a couple of other people that I went to who declined for perfectly acceptable reasons. Brian De Palma being one of them. Mm. He said, you know, I have to save my thoughts about Hitchcock for the movie that Noah and Jake are making about me, which is a great movie. Yeah, I'm very curious about it. It's beautiful. But I just wanted people who I knew, you know, Kiyoshi um, is actually in a film that I had made, um, an earlier film I made about Val Luton. I wanted people who I knew were going to bring something and who were going to speak to the conversation mm-hmm. about filmmaking in the moment, who weren't going to sit back and consider their position and, you know, for posterity. If you have some kind of understanding of color and design and light, directing is really three things. Your editing behavior over time and then controlling moments that should be really fast and making them slow and moments that should be really slow and making them fast. It is indeed a solemn occasion. Of course you got insights from them. You must have learned from them or you wouldn't have included them in the final film. But do you remember in particular having any sit-downs with any of those filmmakers who said something that really did kind of blow your mind that made you rethink something about Hitchcock or Truffaut? A few things. I mean, you know, when Arnaud says the difference between, you know, there's no difference between what makes him quiver with desire and what makes him quiver with um, fear. Arnaud and I have had that conversation before, but to hear him put it that succinctly... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that line really does stand out. Well, he's quite right. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what's so unsettling and unnerving about his films. And so astonishing that's you know that's the end of vertigo mm-hmm. yeah and, uh, and a perfect transition into vertigo because i doubt that many people will watch this movie and have their opinion of that film significantly altered at this point right most people agree it's a masterpiece but your film did help for me crystallize what makes that movie so special and it gets back yeah. to that phrase from earlier about the love of celluloid itself yes the dreamlike quality of that movie the mm-hmm. pacing the cinematography the acting the voyeuristic nature of there's so much watching the hyper reality of the plot yes. Is there any Hollywood movie, anyway, that is so inextricable from its medium? I think of so many films, even movies I like, that I saw last week or a month ago or a year ago, where I could see them as stage plays, I could read them as books, and probably have just about the same experience with it. But Mm -hmm. you can only experience Vertigo as a piece of film. Yes, even though very few people will anymore. (laughs) Mm. Um, Well, I mean, sure, there are other movies that... I mean, I would say... Among modern filmmakers, Paul Thomas Anderson is involved in an enterprise that is Mm. like that in the sense that you're going deep into the experience of actual... Yeah, it's a full sensory. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the minute that the master started, I was just, you know, and I saw it again recently in 70 millimeter, actually. It's that kind of an experience. So there will be blood, so Magnolia, so I don't know, um, where you just, you feel like you're, spiraling Mm -hmm. you know deeper and deeper into something i think that very few filmmakers can do that um you know raging bull is like that fincher since he's not involved in celluloid is it's a different kind of process and a different kind of thing i mean you know but zodiac has the effect of you know moving i don't know i think that in the case of vertigo you know there's a thing that de palma said that's sort of like what the hero is doing is what a film director does. He's creating, you know, I think he actually even uses the term mise-en-scene, mm-hmm. which is a term that I have different feelings about, but it's applicable if you just use it in the, the rock-solid sense of what it really means. Yeah. You know? And so there's a friend of mine named Brent Kite who wrote a piece about Vertigo, and then he made a little video reflection on it, and he said, you know, it's a film that can only be experienced twice the second time. Hmm. 
<laughs> Chris Marker says something similar in his CD-ROM in memory. I think that, yeah, you were caught in something. And the fact that, you know, Fincher, for instance, is somebody who has a problem with the reading of the letter. He has a problem with the... Uh, but as Marty says, yeah, as Marty says, I, I don't take it seriously as a realistic story. That's not the point. And so you're caught in this thing, and by the, when you get to the ending of it, you're... It's not even so much a question of celluloid, but it is a question of the image and moving into the image and what the image is, and you're, you're, you keep moving back into something, returning to something mm-hmm. that is an image, which is this tower. But you're back, and what is it? You know, it's, it's recurring, mm-hmm. and you're caught in something, and you don't know whether you're caught in something real or unreal. You know, De Palma does that too in mm-hmm. his films, but in a very different way. He kind of twerks it in a different direction. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I get mm-hmm. your question, but I think that I could say a lot of movies, The Big Sleep does that. You know, you're moving deeper and deeper into something, but then, you know, very few. Yeah. <laughs> I think Kim Novak coming out of the bathroom is the single greatest moment in the history of movies. At that moment, everything that Hitchcock was about and everything that cinema is about comes together in the most beautiful way, which is, yes, it's a fantasy, but the fantasy is real to him. We were talking just before we started taping about blind spots for me when it comes to Hitchcock and and he made so many films that a lot of us have seen the the major tent poles but have not necessarily really gone through the entire catalog is there one film for you when you run into people like me who say I really need to see more Hitchcock what are the one or two that you really kind of insist are worth your time ah well I don't know what you know I mean the thing is I'm I I take it for granted that people have seen most stuff and so I think that you were saying that you knew someone who hadn't seen I Confess or the Wrong Man indeed one of our listeners Nigel and I haven't either Mm -hmm. so I think that look this is a guy who made his films are all good maybe three or four of them are kind of like you know Champagne and uh, there's another silent The Ring I'm not I'm not that fond of but it's still good the film that he thought was the worst film he ever made Waltz's from Vienna is pretty good very lively movie you know i mean it's different in that sense from every other body of work that big john ford's body of work is that big and he made most of the films are great but there's some that just are are negligible so in hitchcock's case never he just didn't do that you know he cared about every single movie deeply he found a way you know the ones that he says that he hates when you watch them you'd never know it you know jamaica Mm -hmm. and you know he thinks is terrible it's just like it's just not the parodying case is a little bit more of a Selznick movie. Anyway, I guess, you know, I could go on and on, but I would say one movie that de- tends to get slighted, we have two clips, I think, in the movie from it, is Saboteur. People think of it as a kind of a lighter-hearted, dry run for North by Northwest, which it is in some ways. Bob Cummings is very light as a hero. But I, it's a film that I love. I think it's absolutely... It's funny and very lively and very, very, very beautiful. Hmm. This rich portrait of America and different slices of American experience. You're in the middle of this ghost town out west and you're at the Hoover Dam. You're at a 
Fifth Avenue drawing room, you know, with a party going on downstairs. Then you're on the top of the Statue of Liberty. I mean, you know, it's 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 a pretty stunning piece of work. I think that um, I confess is one could quibble about the very very ending of the film, but really, I think it's an amazing movie and. It's interesting the trouble that he had with Montgomery Clift because, you know, you just don't know it when you're watching the movie. Yeah. It's, I find it absolutely entrancing and, and really moving and heartbreaking. And the drama of his character is, you know, quite astonishing. The Wrong Man is another one. I, you know, again, I take it for granted that people know it. They don't. There's a, something a little bit off in the direction that the movie takes because he's following the actual story of the guy. So... The shape of it is a little different, a little odd, but boy, that's it's an incredible film. I know that in the decades since this book originally came out, it's not as if there haven't been filmmakers who have sat down with each other for conversations, but one of the things I've been considering a little challenge for myself is what are the modern correlations to this? Mm. If I could pair together any two filmmakers who should really sit down and do this type of deep exploration, which I don't know if we'll ever get anyone to sit down for a week together like that for eight or nine hours and dive into their work. I'd really have fun coming up with those pairings. Mm -hmm. Have you thought about any pairings like that that would really make sense or would be insightful? I don't know. It's hard to think of someone maybe as revered as, as Hitchcock was by the generation of Truffaut. Yeah, I mean, it's a di- it is a different world now in the sense that, as you said, a lot of people have done this. A lot of directors have done it. You know, Cameron Crowe did a book with Billy Wilder. Mm-hmm. Steven Soderbergh did a book with Richard Lester. Noah's and Jake's movie with Brian is such an enterprise. Though, yeah, I can't wait. Because they really have a very special relationship. Noah and Jake and Wes are all very close to Brian. And um, they've been making the movie for about four years, you know, really tinkering with it and getting it right and it's really complimentary to my film Mm. you know you know marty does a lot of interviews with a lot of people but once he was doing a dga interview and he did it with rick linklater i remember that and rick is somebody that marty had crossed paths with Mm -hmm. a little bit but didn't really know and he's on record as saying raging bull was the transformative film for him yes and so that was a conversation where Marty was in a different orbit from him. He's done conversations with Wes and he's done them with different people, but it was, it was a different kind of orbit. And he said things in that, in that conversation that were very interesting. Mm -hmm. And so I really, I have a, you know, that, that's something that I think would be kind of interesting. I mean, Olivier Assayas did a book with Ingmar Bergman. That's very good. um, Back when he was first starting out as Mm -hmm. a director, actually Stig Bjorkman is kind of part of the conversation. Last question, going back to the original source material here. One of the questions we've received over the years, the 10 years of doing our show, from people who are just getting into film or really trying to take a deeper dive is they always want to know what our recommendations are for film books they should seek out. And on the show where this interview is going to air, we're going to devote it to our top five favorite film books. Mm -hmm. What would be your picks? You don't have to give me all five, but what are the ones that come to mind in addition to Hitchcock Truffaut that you think are essential? I think everything that Mandy Farber wrote is essential. I mean... You know, I know Manny's work so well. I knew Manny really well. I, 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 it's hard for me to, you know, the, there's a side of his writing that's very combative and kind of like trying to be the smartest guy in the room. But it doesn't, you know, that's part of who he was. And, and, and then he kind of acknowledges it, ironically, in the writing itself sometimes. I think Negative Space and the Library of America collection are both, you know, absolutely essential. Apart from that, 
film books, you know, Joe McBride's books and his book about John Ford in particular, Searching for John Ford, that's a really, mm. really special book. He's a very special writer, you know? Yeah. And I always loved what he wrote about Wells. I thought it was beautiful. His, his uh, writing in general, I would recommend. And he has a new biography coming out of someone. Jeez. Lubitsch. There you which go. Which I'm really looking forward to. A favorite here on the show. Fantastic. Mm, Fantastic. Yeah, well, yeah. We just did in New York, in the New York Film Festival, we showed a restored print of Heaven Can Wait. And then Marty and I did a conversation afterwards. Wow. And uh, that was a really nice mm. night. Well, lots of great stuff to consider there, book-wise. And generally about this film and about Hitchcock, I know our listeners will enjoy checking out the film. Ken Jones, thank you very much for your time. Best of luck with the movie. Thank you. I have a favorite little saying to myself. Logic is dull. My thanks again to Kent Jones. We will include his picks for essential film books on our top five page, along with our picks at filmspotting.net. Just click on top fives right there at the top of the page. Spoiler, one of his picks is on my list. Okay. And I didn't know that ahead of time. No, you didn't. do that just to look smart. Hitchcock Truffaut is currently out in limited release, and it opens here in Chicago at the Music Box on Christmas Day. Up next, Adam and I will step into the shoes of two actors known for going big in Massacre Theater. Then we'll start the best of year talk with a film spotting poll, which asks you to name your favorite film of 2015. Stay with us. folks just wanted to jump in with another thank you to audible.com for supporting film spotting a couple other movie book recommendations Fosse by Sam Wasson if you are a fan of Fosse's films as I am like all that jazz this is the definitive biography of Fosse and Matthew Modine's Full Metal Jacket Diary both books Josh that I've recommended in previous episodes of the show but both are available right now over at Audible you can download either of them for free just by going to audiblepodcast.com slash filmspotting that's audiblepodcast.com slash filmspotting to get your free audiobook we do thank Audible for their support of the show we have some movies recommendations for you as well coming from our friends at Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent international and classic films one of those is let the bullets fly chinese star zhang wen was the darling of the art film world after his stunning debut in the heat of the sun and the band in china but awarded in can devils on the doorstep he exploded the box office with let the bullets fly though this movie says is a zigzagging gleefully madcap and elaborately political action genre mashup movie also has an exclusive presentation of street of crocodiles the brand new 2k transfer of the brothers quay's legendary short 
chosen by Terry Gilliam as one of the best animated films of all time. Every day, movies curators introduce a new title and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Listeners of Film Spotting can try movie free for one month. Just go to movie.com slash film spotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash film spotting. This is an emergency. This is an emergency. Homicides in Chicago, Illinois have surpassed the death toll of American Special Forces in Iraq. Hey, it's all Welcome to Chirac. And welcome back to Film Spotting. Always nice to get something new from Spike Lee and nice too that at close to 60, he clearly doesn't have any intention of shying away from controversy. That was a bit of the trailer for Lee's latest. It's called Chirac, a movie that has not surprisingly ruffled some feathers here in Chicago. And I haven't been paying a whole lot of attention to the controversy, Josh, but it does feel like one of those movies that maybe some people are condemning before they even see it. Just based on the name, I remember when the movie was announced that it was coming out, there were some people who were upset about it. It was something on Twitter when the trailer came out and people were all over it. I didn't see a lot of positive stuff, although most of the ire was directed at a disbelief of Nick Cannon being in this picture. That that wasn't mm. going over well at all. Well, Adam and I do plan to see Chirac before sharing our opinions on it. We hope to do that in time for next week's show. It right now is our planned review. We'll have that plus our top five discoveries of 2015. These are the actors, directors, screenwriters, composers, really everyone's fair game here. You can send along your picks, help us out, remind us of performances and the behind the scenes folks who did great work that we may have forgotten over the course of the year. Send that to feedback at filmspotting.net. I think one of your discoveries, Josh, just might be that you shouldn't be ripping on Nick Cannon. <laughs> Maybe he's a really good actor. We'll find out. I've seen him in at least one other role that I appreciated at a Sundance movie five or six years ago. I can't that remember can't the name of it. Remember the title. I don't think it got much of a release, unfortunately, but he was quite good in it. He so. must have been riveting. Okay. Let's get to a little bit of housekeeping. Some notes here for our Chicago area listeners. If you go to filmspotting.net right now, we are giving away admit two passes to see the December 9th screening of The Danish Girl. This is the film starring Eddie Redmayne and Alicia Vikander. Again, just go to filmspotting.net. There's a link to enter to win those admit two passes right in the top stories of our website. Also here in Chicago, wanted to promote the third annual Chicago Serbian Film Fest. It starts this weekend, so it runs December 4th through the 6th at the MovieCo in Rosemont. It is an annual celebration of the best in contemporary Serbian cinema, Josh. They're presenting seven films that they've selected that all have been recognized at various festivals around the world. If you are curious, and I'm curious as I know nothing about Serbian cinema, the URL is serbianfilmfest.com. We will link to that in our show notes at filmspotting.net. We promised you last week that we would do a little bit of blind spotting. This week, we would talk about The Wrong Man starring Henry Fonda, Alfred Hitchcock's film from 1956. It was a selection inspired by Hitchcock Truffaut and director Kent Jones himself. If you're a subscriber to the Film Spotting podcast, well, you probably already heard it. That review was 
published separately and should already be in your feed. We felt like the show was getting a little crowded. We'd give you something to chew on as an appetizer in anticipation of this show. So we put that out on Wednesday, a movie we did both appreciate, Josh, maybe me just a slight bit more than you, not as much as our co-producer Sam Van Hallgren, who gave it five big stars on Letterboxd. You can't go any higher. You really can't. So if you want to hear that, if you're a radio listener and you're curious about our thoughts on Hitchcock's The Wrong Man, and really, why wouldn't you be? Go to filmspotting.net and listen there or subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or whatever podcatcher you choose. Hitchcock supposedly, famously said that all actors are cattle. We will now moo with Massacre Theater. We perform a scene badly. You get a chance to win a prize. Last time, we massacred this. Consider for a moment... The world a rat lives in is a hostile world, indeed. If a rat were to scamper through your front door right now, would you greet it with hostility? I suppose I would. Has a rat ever done anything to you to create this animosity you feel toward them? Rats spread disease to bite people. Rats were the cause of the bubonic plague, but that's some time ago. I propose to you any disease a rat could spread, a squirrel could equally carry. Would you agree? Right. Yet I assume you don't share the same animosity with squirrels that you do with rats, do you? No. Yet they're both rodents, are they not? And except for the tail, they even rather look alike, don't they? It's an interesting thought, Akurene. However interesting as the thought may be, it makes not one bit of difference to how you feel. If a rat were to walk in here right now as I'm talking, would you greet it with a source of your delicious milk? Probably not. I didn't think so. That was Christoph Waltz as Colonel Hans Landa and Denis Menochet as Perry Lapadite in 2009's Inglorious Bastards, written and directed by, I forget, some guy. That massacre was part of our big bondage party a couple weeks ago. You missed out if you weren't part of that. Our review of Spectre and Top 5 James Bond tropes. The tie-in, pretty obvious. Vaults there back in the villain role in the new Bond. Also, not heard in that scene, but present in it. Spectre, Bond girl, Leia Seydoux, is actually one of the Lapadite daughters. Cyrus Zamanian from Austin, Texas said, Josh's Christoph Waltz sounds like an old Asian woman with a speech impediment. <laughs> Adam's performance was quite nice, There you though. go. Quite nice. I think my more subtle performance, the French accent, maybe that endeared me to some listeners. At least I like made Cyrus. Cyrus do some critical work there <laughs> and come up with some comparison. It was all over the place. We heard from some listeners who thought there was a bit of Scottish brogue to what you were doing, Nigerian to what you were doing. I think that's the I, first time just, I've been accused of using a Nigerian <laughs> accent. Just your brilliance, Josh, that people can't quite place it. Reed Ramsey in Knoxville, Tennessee said, the only connection I can find is that Vaults is also Inspector. Unfortunately, he didn't terrify me or even move me in any way, Inspector. He may actually be the most boring Bond villain I've ever seen which I don't think is Waltz's fault. But his performance as Hans Landa in Bastards forever changed the way I see movie villains. All right, this is coming from, I'm going to give this a, my best shot, Matteo Corpé well, we from Lyon. Matt. He's Matthew. In Lyon, he's known as Matt. Okay. 
for the first time ever, I'm able to participate in Massacre Theater. It does help that you went with one of my favorite scenes of all time, the opening to Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. The obvious connection is Christoph Waltz playing the breakout role that has haunted every one of his performances since then. They'll also note that Inglorious Bastards and Spectre both feature great French actresses giving so-so performances. That would be Melanie Laurent and Leah Seydoux, respectively. So-so performances. Melanie Laurent, one of my top actresses of the year in Glorious Bastards, came out. How dare you, Matt Dew. Matt continues. Hans Landa's rodent hypothetical also features in the second best scene, Inspector, which, sorry, Adam is not saying much. When a mouse enters a room, Bond is guarding, and Craig hilariously asks, who are you? Who do you work for? I do remember that. Much like Landa, I do not doubt 007 would have shot it immediately had it been a rat rather than a mouse. (laughs) Well done. What a connection that we obviously did not think of. P.S. Matt says, I'm unfortunately not acquainted with the infamous, you want to do this one? You love doing this one. Thomas D'Argent in Lyon, France. We gotta France. get those two together. <laughs> in Lyon. Come on. It can't be that big of a place, Lyon. I've we not need, been to Lyon, I can't say. We need these two to get together and we need pictures. Josh, reach into the film spotting hat. It's pretty brimming. A lot of people, despite your accent work, were able to recognize Quentin Tarantino's dialogue and that Christoph Waltz performance as Hans Landa. Reach in, pick out this week's winner. The winner is Brian Fontania from San Leandro, California. Congratulations, Brian. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very own film spotting t-shirt. Martin, look at me. I am looking at you. Now look at me the way I'm looking at you. Put it in your eyes. You're mine ass without saying it. How about this? What are you telling me? That you're sleepy? That you want to go to bed? So this edition of Massacre Theater was going to be an earmuffs edition, but we decided to kiddie-proof it for you. So you're safe if you have young children. Just getting too out of control. (laughs) In earshot. I will say that this scene might have the best stage directions in the history of Massacre Theater. 560 plus episodes. We've never had some of the stage directions that we have in this scene. Yeah, I've I've got a a giggle hyphen cackle. A giggle cackle. And I can't wait to hear you do it. Yeah, I I don't know how that's going to sound. I'm going to find out when you do. (laughs) Got to be in the moment. It's got to come from a place of real honesty and That's right. authenticity. That's right. Josh, where does this scene come from? Well, it does tie in with a topic we're discussing on this week's show, or maybe we discussed it in more detail earlier in the week on that special podcast download. That's the only bit of hint you're getting. Because it's the only one we could think of. It really is. With that, I started off. <clears throat> you're going to give me the action. Okay. And action. Give up. Your time's up. <laughs> You better hit me, because you only got one bullet left. So do you. Wow. We've got something in common. We both know our guns. What we don't have in common is that I don't care if I live, and you do. That hurts. You're not having any fun, are you? Why don't you come with us? Try terrorism for hire. We'll blow some crap up. It's more fun. Shut the F up. You should watch your effing mouth. I'm about to unleash the biblical plague Helle deserves. But I'll give this crap pool a break if my brother and I walk. B.S. Oh, oh no. I, I see. I see. You, you think I'm bluffing. Maybe I am. But then maybe I'm not. More importantly, what would you do with me locked up? You'd drive your wife and kid crazy. Say, how is your daughter anyway? Is she ripening by now? Your darling Janie? Your little peach? Is she ripe? <laughs> And scene. scene. That was not the giggle cackle, though I think no. you nailed the giggle cackle. That was a rup drawer. Yeah, I didn't have any stage direction for that, so I, <laughs> I might have flubbed it. Wow. Wow. 
I got to take this sweater off. I'm a little, I'm, little hot now. I'm speechless. <laughs> if you know what film we just massacred, well, good for you. Email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, December 12th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on the show in a couple of weeks. To get official Massacre Theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. How good was he? Paulo, yeah, he was great. He's a perfect fighter. Ain't nobody ever better. So how'd you beat him? Time beat him. Time, you know, takes everybody out. It's undefeated. Anyway, I got a lot. So when up. Mickey died, he came and talked to you, right? Talked you out of quitting. Took you to L.A. Trained you. Brought you back. How do you know all this? How do you think? The people have spoken, Josh, and the people, unlike me, also have the benefit of knowing that Creed has been getting really good reviews and did really well at the box office last weekend. Last week on the show, I pretty much said I had no interest in seeing it, and, well, that has changed. I now really want to see the movie Creed. Yeah, I mean, we were interested because of the star and director, I would say, made it somewhat appealing, but I had no idea it would get this sort of reception. Franchise spinoffs starring the spawn of iconic movie characters apparently are going to be the next big thing. We are just waiting on that call from Hollywood to hear that Daughter of Bond is a go. With Alicia Vikander, right? Absolutely. I hope her schedule is clear. That was Michael B. Jordan, the actor you were referring to, and Sly Stallone in Creed, a success at the box office over the Thanksgiving weekend, and a pretty solid performer in the current film spotting poll, a poll we decided to throw in the towel on, basically, because, frankly, it's a really boring question, but also because we want to give you a couple weeks to vote for your favorite film of the year before sharing results on our Top 10 of 2015 show, which we are going to be recording way, way, way too soon. Every year, it's the same, totally unprepared. It's kind of crazy. I mean, Creed, we do have to add, I feel like I have Mm -hmm. to add to the list now, Ryan Coogler, the director there. So add that to, I mean, there's there's still like a couple of, golden brick contenders I need to see yet, mm-hmm. let alone all the stuff that's just getting released. So Absolutely. it's insane. The question we posed to you was simply, which non-Star Wars holiday spectacle are you most likely to see? And the key here is that we probably didn't do a great job of setting it up. Even more flying, a already flawed question was, by spectacle, we really meant wide releases. So we're not thinking of some of the maybe edgier independent movies. We're not thinking of the carols of the world, which... I've seen now, Josh. You also caught up with Carol. Correct. I was sitting Didn't we next, sit next to, you. to each other. I was. I was. <laughs> you must so have been entranced. Well, that's good. That yeah. I all space and time just cut off because that's the effect that all my texting Carol has on and you. phone calls. You didn't notice that. <laughs> didn't using my pen light nope. to write notes. Nope. Didn't wow. notice. So, Carol aside, which wide release are you most likely to see? Your options were Creed. The Good Dinosaur from Pixar in the Heart of the Sea, Ron Howard doing some kind of version of Moby Dick, Joy, David O. Russell with Jennifer Lawrence, or Sisters, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. You could also select none of the above if you really want to see anything else out in wide release but those movies. Josh, how did it come out? I do want to see Sisters, but not many other people do. Last place, 6%. In the Heart of the Sea received 9%. The Good Dinosaur Mildly positive reviews so far. That only got 14% of the vote. Creed here comes in with 21% in third place. Up at the top, none of the above. 23% in second place, but that means Joy, which I did end up voting for, won the poll with 27% of the vote. And a note about The Good Dinosaur, our friends over at The Next Picture Show, part of the Film Spotting Podcast Network, are discussing The Good Dinosaur in conjunction with an earlier Pixar film, one 
pretty commonly considered a masterpiece, Toy Story. So we'll see what they think of both of those films on that upcoming two-part edition of The Next Picture Show. You can learn more about that in iTunes or nextpictureshow.net. Let's get to some feedback on that poll. Mike said, maybe I've taken too many hits to the head, but Creed has my vote. I'm looking forward to this fresh take on the franchise of my youth, adulthood, and midlife crisis. It took Sly to make a major boxing movie with a black protagonist. Oh, the irony. I'm sure Josh will hate the film. Well, that's not quite fair. I mean, it's not going to be as good as Rocky Balboa. There's no way. (laughs) Which again, is a fine film. But I think Mike has a point here because based on what I've heard about Creed, I think it was actually our friend from the next picture show, Scott Tobias, who said this, Creed is a very good Rocky movie. And you apparently don't like very good Rocky movies since you don't like the first Rocky movie. Well, Rocky Balboa is the only good Rocky. Well, I can't mm-hmm. say that. I haven't yeah, seen them just all. Just stop. Of the ones I've seen. Just read this email from Andrew Cochran in Riverside, California, please. I was a bit shocked to see The Hateful Eight wasn't on this list. I figure it wasn't here because it would have stolen the show. But come on, guys. An all-star cast featuring a screenplay penned by one of the best working auteurs with an original Ennio Morricone score, an interfreaking mission, and it's shot in glorious 70 millimeter. I think we all know what we'll be doing in December. Mm. The Hateful Eight. Haven't heard of it. Brett from Newton, Massachusetts. I'll add to the chorus for The Hateful Eight, and I know what you're thinking. It's a limited release picture until January. Yeah, actually, you're a mind reader, Brett. But if the reports are true, at least two cinemas per state will be getting the 70 millimeter treatment. We're waiting on that list, which gives basically everyone the chance to see it, given that seeing a true 70 millimeter film that's by Tarantino in southern Idaho, let alone anywhere, is a rare opportunity. I'd gladly throw all the other options away for that true spectacle. Not so for Will from Los Angeles. He says, even if The Hateful Eight was on this poll, my choice would remain joy. David O. Russell's films come alive with an explosive energy that throws everything at the wall, hoping some part of it will stick. It's an overwhelming approach to writing and directing film, but it is also wildly entertaining and beautiful when it works. And that's far more compelling than checking off another typical Tarantino bloodbath. Okay, so yes, for the record, we are familiar with that new Tarantino movie. We didn't forget it, but for whatever reason, we stuck with a bunch of the less than thrilling movies that will be in wide release before the new year. As Brett mentioned, The Hateful Eight opens a two-week 70 millimeter roadshow engagement on Christmas Day on reportedly about 100 screens. As of this taping, we actually don't know when we're going to see The Hateful Eight. We're really hoping that we're going to catch it. Maybe there will be a critic screening sometime in the next two weeks before we tape our top 10 films of 2015 show. I have set aside a spot in my top five of the year. It's there for Quentin Tarantino if he wants to take it, Josh. I believe that. And the other one we haven't heard about is Star Wars 2, Force Awakens. I yep. think those are the two major releases of the year yet that a screening hasn't been announced. So who knows what's going on with those? You mean Star Wars 7? Is that how you call it? <laughs> well, you said Star Wars 2, so I thought I would just correct you. Star Wars also. Oh, okay. It's also clear to me now. I, I know my number Star Wars movies. Yeah. You don't know how to rank them, but you know... <laughs> The numbers. Speaking of my top five, we will be doing our annual end of year roundtable in a couple of weeks. Our guests, as always, we love tradition, will be Michael Phillips from the Tribune and Scott Tobias, the aforementioned Scott Tobias from the Next Picture Show podcast. Other special guest voices will be included. And on that show, we'd like to announce your consensus pick for film of the year. All you got to do is answer this poll question. And We know you have a lot of movies you need to see before voting as well. I guess this is sort of another snapshot. Here we are through the end of November with all these Christmas releases ahead. What do you think the best film of 2015 is? The options are Ex Machina, Inside Out, Mad Max Fury Road, The Martian, Spotlight, 
and will give you the other option. Maybe those possibilities might be Brooklyn mm-hmm. Creed, some recent releases, or from earlier in the year, Mistress America, Sicario. A lot of people also loved both of those films. I have a feeling most of our snarky listeners are going to pick other because they are going to be waiting for Star Wars The Force Awakens and The Hateful Eight. They also are setting aside spots in their top 10 films of the year. And that's fine. If that's the route you choose, we want to know what you think. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. Last year, Boyhood won this poll in a walk. Other came in a distant second. But I kind of doubt that any of these films are going to dominate in the same way. We will see. Again, you can vote now at filmspotting.net. Let's get back to some book talk after the break. Inspired by Kent Jones' documentary about the landmark interview book, Hitchcock, we'll share our favorite books about the movies. The Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. Nice to meet you, baby. I can show you incredible things. Magic, madness, heaven and sin. Saw you there and I thought, oh my God. Look at that face. You look like my next mistake. Love's a game. Do you want to play? You, money, sit and tie. I can read you like a magazine. Ain't it funny? Rumors fly. And I know you heard about me, so hey, let's be friends. Time to see how this one ends. Wrap your passport in my head. So it's gonna be forever. It's gonna go down in flames. You can tell me when it's over. The house with the pain Got a long list of ex-lovers Who'll tell you I'm insane But you know I love the players You love the games So goddamn reckless We'll take this way too far Donation time, and Josh, I don't know if it's because of the Thanksgiving holiday and with Christmas coming up, our listeners were just particularly generous, especially with their comments. We've got some wonderful emails and notes from listeners we'll get to here in a moment. We will acknowledge first our featured artist this week as we're talking about a popular artist getting critical reappraisal thanks to a famous peer. How about Ryan Adams' full album cover of Taylor Swift's 1989? Is it this year's Hitchcock Truffaut? You're really stretching to find a way to talk about Taylor hey. Swift, aren't you? <laughs> I'm just so glad we finally fit Taylor Swift into film spotting. And Hitchcock Truffaut gave us a good excuse. Let's get to those donations now, including a thank you to Jeff in Urbana, Illinois, Andrew in Chicago, and Mark in Fenny Stratford, UK. And Josh, I looked this up. Fenny Stratford is not to be confused with Stratford-on-Avon, where I've been and enjoyed many a Shakespeare play. No, Fenny Stratford is actually near Milton Keynes. I think it's about an hour away from Stratford. Okay. Thanks for laying that out. I'm glad you know now. After listening to you guys ramble on for the last year or so, Mark says, I've realized you have quickly become my most listened to and anticipated podcast, so I thought it best I should donate. You're welcome. My job takes me driving to London a great deal, and I was looking for a distraction when I decided I should take my growing love of cinema to a whole nother level. Coming across your podcast when searching for some discussion about Kubrick, who I had recently discovered, turned me on to your podcast, and I've been an avid listener ever since. Your insights and conversational style, coupled with your ability to argue and not take each other or yourself too seriously, is refreshing, and the format of the show is compelling. Polls and bad acting? Yes, please. But it is the constant recommendations and opening of doors to some great film that I owe a lot to you and the team at Filmspotting. I have far too much to catch up on, but I'm looking forward to the journey. My wife blames film spotting for me dragging her to films she would never ordinarily see. Although she enjoyed Sicario, there is hope. 
and frankly, so do I. I have a rare treat next week. I'm off work, home alone, and I have completed all the tasks and chores my wife was going to leave for me. I have decided to have my own personal I don't get the chance to do this often film festival in my living room for a week of either new, anticipated, and revisited films. I've opened my doors to my friends and have a few people dropping in to join me, and I am unbelievably looking forward to it. We're here doing the show every week. Why can't we find the time for one of these festivals? I was just thinking that sounds kind of great. <laughs> so inspired definitely by film spotting, some of the selections that will be part of this festival, Sophie's Choice, Solaris, Boogie Nights, and just really for me, Josh, Manhattan, the great Woody Allen film, and Man on Wire as well, part of that mix. We certainly hope you have a great time with that festival. Ryan in Portland, Oregon also wrote in. He's a devoted film spotting zombie, he says, since episode 204. I love it that it's episode 204, The Bank Job. The Bank Job is a movie I actually thought of a few months ago because every once in a while, there are those films that occur to you Oh, yeah, I saw that. Oh, yeah, I actually reviewed that. What is that the bank That you barely job? have a recollection of. Give it. me a star. Jason Statham. Oh, yeah, Jason okay. Statham. Okay. Is Demi Moore in it? Why do I think Demi Moore shows up in The Bank Job? It's a heist movie. Doesn't I, sound right. But... I think I gave it three stars. I think I, <laughs> I think I gave it a pass. Pretty enjoyable. Anyway, Ryan says, you have maintained an incredible level of dedication and quality through the years. Thanks to everyone who works on the show. Highlights for me this past year include Adam's passion for the Fast and Furious movies. Speaking of... Jason Statham and Furious 7, and your entertaining discussion of Dr. Shivago. Also got a note here from Patricia in Portland, Oregon. I've just sent you a post-birthday donation via PayPal. It's smaller this year because turning 41 doesn't garner quite the payout that 40 does. As to your donor who suggested that you shouldn't say a particular phrase... I'm writing in to suggest you say certain things more often. While mostly your accents are the kind of general American that most people speak, there are a few words that delight me with your middle American pronunciation of them. I've got a particular favorite, and I will give a small donation if you read the following list. You might then be able to guess what the word in question is. Well, now you're going to become too self-conscious, but this is where... I know. I shouldn't have looked ahead. You need to read the list, Josh, It's me. It's just me. Huh? I don't think I can get lumped into this Really? you. I, I don't think so. I could be wrong. Read the list, please. Okay. I'm trying to think of something else, something other than, okay. Room starring Brie Larson. The Newsroom. The War Room. Panic Room. Four Rooms. A Room with a View. Boiler Room. Marvin's Room. Room 237. The Roommate in the Room. The Killing Room. Okay. So, how do you say it? Ten of those, you said the way most of us say it, but the first one, you said it definitely the way Patricia was hoping you would. Say room. Well, I say room. 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 You say room. Are you a vacuum? So Patricia loves it, and it's going to get us more money. So, Josh, keep saying room however you want. A $5 a month donation comes to us from Dan Gervais in Winnipeg, Manitoba. He says, this is the first time I've written into the show, but I've been a fan for a very long time, and I've just signed up as a monthly subscriber. Why now? It's my favorite time of the year, Golden Bricks. It represents a big part of why I love film spotting so much, which is discovery. Whether it's a film I hadn't heard about or a new director who's doing something interesting, you guys constantly make me pause the show so that I can make notes on my iPhone, and I love that. Thanks for doing what you do. Thank you, Dan. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here, Josh, because I want to get to Kathy's email for the NJ in San Antonio, Texas, is a new $10 a month donor. And Laura in Calgary, Alberta says it's time to pay the dealer as a longtime listener of the show. Film spotting has become a big part of my film going experience. I always look forward to listening to your reviews after seeing a particular film and, of course, catching up with your top five lists. If I take in a particular movie solo, I'm sure to queue up your review for The Walk Home, and it's like having the most intelligent friends offering valuable and insightful commentary on what I just watched keep up the great work. Oh, How thank nice you, Laura. That? So we close with Kathy W. 
She's in Alfred, New York. She's been a donor to the show, certainly before, as she will touch on here in a minute. And I just think as we're joking about the holidays and the generous mood our listeners are in, I think Kathy has maybe touched on something that all of our film spotting families maybe can partake in as they have some time together in the coming month. I've been a religious, never-missed-an-episode listener ever since my first, the one where you massacred one of my favorite movies, Sexy Beast. I knew immediately I'd found my podcast home, and that devotion has never wavered. I have donated each year except last. Both my kids are in college now. The empty nest thing 100% sucks, by the way. You'll find out. And my husband is also completing his second post-grad degree, so money's tight. But damn, this small donation is about an eighth of a college meal plan and worth so much more. So I'm throwing a few bucks your way, less than you deserve. When I've donated in the past, I've written about movies you've opened my eyes to. There are no shortage of those over the past two years. But this time, I want to tell you about the deathmatch you inspired in my family. Your actor deathmatch last year was anguishing, and my yelling at my iPod inspired me to go big or go home. So home I went. Inspired by film spotting, my two kids, husband, and I created a family deathmatch. This sounds like it could go horribly wrong. We started with a democratically voted upon bracket of 16 and true to film spotting fashion created an inviolable criterion. These films had to be critical to our identity as the tight loving family we are. Any film voted off meant that we could imagine a world without those film quotes, iconic images, and memories of nights with popcorn and family time rewatching movies for the 10th time. Gone. Disclaimer from Kathy. Some of these films were not age-appropriate at the time we watched them with the kids. Sue me. Already, long story short, the four of us spent a contentious and intellectually thrilling five hours on this. There were fights and near tears over the early eliminations. Princess Bride, A Christmas Story, School of Rock, Almost Famous. Wow, I'm in tears now. Oh, but the final four. I won't tell you what they were. Okay, Spinal Tap was one of them, but the winner was Raising Arizona. I love this final four if it has those two in it. The best movie ever made? Sure, debatable. But the most quotable? The most fun as our kids were growing up? The one the boys want to make sure their girlfriends see? Oh, yeah. This is already too long. Just know that when you're tired or feel like this podcast might be too draining, you're affecting folks all across the world in the best of ways. I love that you're taking breaks when you need to. Please thank your families for supporting you as you do this. That is a great idea and far less violent than I initially feared when I heard family deathmatch. But thank you so much, Kathy. And uh, especially for that note, as it's just about to turn midnight. Exactly. And it's draining and we need to get out of here. But I have to throw in real quick because that email about the bank job and the talk of random movies that you barely remember reviewing, the episode where we massacred Sexy Beast for Kathy was episode 290. The review on that show, a little gem called Edge of Darkness. Edge of, what's Edge of Darkness? Exactly. Edge of Darkness is that Mel Gibson Boston cop movie. Oh, man. See, in those days... You would have reviewed Krampus. We might have. We have two other wonderful notes. Mark Crilly in Novi, Michigan. Laura Ellis in Dade City. The famous Laura Ellis of our top five James Bond tropes episode. We're going to save their comments for next show. James, crystal scars. I could show you incredible things. Stolen kisses, pretty lies. I'm your king and you're my queen. Find out what you want. Be that girl for a month this is Martin McDonough, and you're listening to Film Spotting. Welcome back to Film Spotting with Josh Larson. I'm Adam Kempinar. We do have a fine tradition on the show of listeners coming up with most of our best material, coming up with some great top five topics, certainly, among other things. And about a month ago, we got an email from a longtime listener in London, Nigel Smith in Tufnell Park, who you already know from earlier in the show. He helped set up that first question for Kent Jones, and he helped us 
come up with this week's top five. Hi, chaps. I noticed on Letterboxd that Adam has seen Hitchcock Truffaut. I also saw it at the London Film Festival last week. It far surpassed my expectations and is easily one of the best docs about filmmakers and filmmaking I've seen, which made me think, how about your favorite film books for a top five list? I'd love to hear your picks. Cheers, Nigel. Film books is a topic we've considered for years since really going back to the origins of the show, because over the years, a lot of listeners have written in asking us what books we recommend for them. And it just lined up so perfectly here with Kent Jones and Hitchcock Truffaut. Let's talk a little bit about how we approach these lists, Josh, because we did, as we usually do, wrestle with this a little bit behind the scenes. And we talked about the fact that you can kind of separate these into books by critics or academics and books that are by filmmakers talking about the filmmaking process. And one thing we did land on is that we think this topic is rich enough, especially with those categories, that we can maybe revisit this one down the road. And so we actually did decide to just focus on one of those two categories. We're doing the ones by critics this time, right? We are. We're going to start there, which I'm glad about because I have more of those. Um, I think we we kind of split in the ways or at Mm -hmm. least what appeals to us in reading material about film. I lean more towards work by critics and you seem to be more interested in work by filmmakers. So we'll um, we'll flip it and get to the filmmaker side when the occasion arises mm-hmm. down the road. It did occur to me that it might be fun to let you do your list of the critics and scholars books. And I could focus on the ones by filmmakers to balance things out a little bit because you're right. I think it speaks to our different approaches to film. You came to film really as someone who always wanted to be a film critic. And that was what really drew you in. Whereas I was always drawn to wanting to make movies. So my first readings were always books that were by directors or by screenwriters talking about their process. And I came to criticism separately. But I threw that aside. I figure we can revisit it at some point and we will get to some of those books. Why don't you start us off? What's your number five? So I did compile the list uh, trying to answer that question that we get. Where would you turn if you're if you're a budding cinephile or even an aspiring critic? What would you start reading? And a lot of these I did read, as you were saying, when I was pretty young. So either still dreaming about being a critic or just starting out. How do Basically, how do I actually do this? Well, let me read some of the greats who have done it. And one of those undoubtedly is Roger Ebert. So I have a book of his at number five. He did a lot of his books were compendiums. He, of course, had his memoir, Life Itself, and a whole book of his negative reviews. The one that I would really recommend is his great movies book. And this is something of Ebert's Sacred Cow collection. He revisits classics, places them in historical context, but also gives them a fresh consideration. There are three volumes overall, and that encompasses, I think, about 400 films. But I'd start with the original one. Uh, This one tackles a good chunk of the common canon, so it includes some films that we've given Sacred Cow reviews to, others that are in the film spotting pantheon, so essays here in 2001, Do the Right Thing, The Godfather, Singing in the Rain, and The Wizard of Oz. These are short, relatively short, and I think they exhibit Ebert's great talent for this concise, critical observation that's, you know, born of his experience as a newspaperman. Here's a taste, and this is about the original Star Wars. I think he perfectly captures here how the movie's populous nature is is also part of its art. George Lucas's space epic has colonized our imaginations, and it is hard to stand back and see it simply as a motion picture because it has so completely become part of our memories. It's as goofy as a children's tale, as shallow as an old Saturday afternoon serial, as corny as Kansas in August, 
and a masterpiece. Those who analyze its philosophy do so, I imagine, with a smile in their minds. May the force be with them. So I think Ebert's great movies is it's a good place for budding cinephiles to start because it considers something like Star Wars right alongside, say, Yosujiro Ozu's Floating Weeds or Elaine Renee's Last Year at Marion Bad. It's putting them in the same context, taking even the most monumental works of cinema and discussing them in this casual manner so that they feel uh, they feel scalable mm-hmm. for new film enthusiasts. My number five, Josh, I was all set to try to sound really arty and Mr. Grad School because I did discover this book as a grad student in a film class, and that's What is Cinema? Andre Bazan. You talk about places to start. This would seem like a place to start with the book called What is Cinema? It's probably a little bit more advanced. You might want to work your way up to that one. Yeah, than some of the other ones on this list. And I was all prepared to talk about how it's such a perfect tie-in with Hitchcock and Truffaut because he's even mentioned in the documentary. And Bazan was Truffaut's mentor, really a father to him. He was the co-founder of Cahiers du Cinéma, that influential film criticism magazine that came out of Paris. This book, What is Cinema?, includes a foreword by Truffaut, and he really focuses on this aesthetic of reality. The opening chapter is called An Aesthetic of Reality, Neorealism, and he talks about filmmakers like De Sica and movies such as The Bicycle Thief and Umberto D. and Charlie Chaplin in his films Monsieur Verdu and Limelight. He talks about Fellini and My Beloved Knights of Kiberia. I was going to go on and on about his preference for filmmakers like Wells, and Renoir, who really used the mise-en-scene and sort of reclaimed the authenticity of the photographic image with deep focus and wide shots. But now that I've gotten that pick in there, I'm subbing it out. My number five is going to be a book I read about five years ago that is not really necessarily film criticism. It's definitely not film theory, but is just such an enjoyable read. And the movies it focuses on are so good that if I was talking to a young aspiring cinephile out there and they were looking for a good place to start, I tell them to start with this book and start with four of these five movies. The book is Pictures at a Revolution from the writer Mark Harris. The subtitle is Five Movies and the Birth of the New Hollywood. So it focuses on the 1968 Oscars in particular. And that seismic shift that happened in Hollywood because of movies like Easy Rider, where we had Bonnie and Clyde being nominated for Best Picture, along with In the Heat of the Night and The Graduate. And then you had a movie like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which still had that old guard Hollywood aspect to it, but was tackling a provocative issue in race. And then you have something like Dr. Doolittle being nominated as well, where Hollywood is still trying to cling to the shreds of those old spectacles. So Harris, as listeners should know, because he was on the show a little while back when we talked to him, Michael Phillips was on to discuss the movie It Follows and the horror genre and what movies scare him. He wrote a great article for Grantland at the time. But the stories behind that shift, behind the making of these films, to hear how a movie like Bonnie and Clyde gets made and what it owes to films like films from Francois Truffaut and other directors from the French New Wave are fascinating. And if you didn't already appreciate those films, it will make you appreciate them even more. And I would point to those films, really, Josh, for someone who's maybe trying to just get outside mainstream Hollywood or whatever they see at the multiplex, if they want to have their horizons broadened a little bit, I think Bonnie and Clyde, I think The Graduate are really good places to start. I love In the Heat of the Night as well. So Mark Harris's Pictures at a Revolution is my number five. Yeah, Harris is doing some really strong work. I also have a contemporary book at number four. It's the Wes Anderson Collection by Matt Zoller-Seitz. This is the one that sits 
on my coffee table at home. It's just too expertly designed, which is apropos for Anderson's work to be filed away on a bookshelf. Zoller Seitz, he's the editor-in-chief of RogerEbert.com. He writes for a number of other places, too. He's probably one of the few people who appreciate Anderson's work even more than me. And unlike me, I just had the chance to interview Anderson once around the time of Rushmore, but Zoller Seitz has a close working relationship with him, so he was able to get access for this extensive interview book that tackles in depth each of Anderson's films. And Zoller Seitz has also published since a book entirely on the Grand Budapest Hotel because the first volume came out before that movie was released. You know, as an interview subject, Anderson's pretty tight-lipped in terms of talking about his own work and what it might mean. But hearing about his influences and the behind-the-scenes processes that Zorsites pulls out is really fascinating. And the introductory essays here to each film, they're just fantastic. Zorsites hones in on what makes these movies so magical. There's also this really profound introduction by Michael Chabon that talks about Anderson's movies in relation to brokenness. Uh, as I mentioned too, though, it's it's the design of the book that's really exquisite. It's anchored by Max Dalton's amazing illustrations. So this, this one, the Wes Anderson collection, it's worth having for those alone. My number four is the American Cinema Directors and Directions by Andrew Saris, the famed critic really known for appropriating the auteur theory from those Cahiers du Cinema critics and making it mainstream, at least in American cinephile circles. This is really thought of as the Bible of auteur studies. He actually does provide a chronological listing of what he considers the most important American films, and he really tears the most important American directors as he sees it. Of course, how much credence you give to the auteur theory, that's something we can discuss and debate. I know some would like to expunge it from our vocabularies completely, but I don't think it's going away anytime soon. Not as long, Josh, as we are going to continue looking for artistry in movies, which requires some focus on the artist. I couldn't find my copy of this on my bookshelf, actually, or I would have been able to pluck some good examples. But since it covers 1929 to 1968, you inevitably discover a whole host of directors, of course, you've probably never heard of, but then others who time hasn't been as kind to and others who time has been more kind to than Saris initially gives them credit. It's fascinating to see certain directors' work considered within this snapshot of time, that window of just 1929 to 68. And you do get some thoughts from Saris on how his own views of the auteur theory have changed. It includes an essay where he reconsiders and revisits it. And I mentioned the tiering of directors and the list. You know, it's a little bit of what we do here on the show. We hope we're getting to some serious discussions, but going about it sometimes in a trivial or entertaining way with these top five lists. And Saris is ranking directors, essentially. He's saying, here's the top tier, the elite. Here's the next tier. And here's the next tier beyond that and so on. And I do think that one of the steps every young cinephile goes through is coming up with a value system, making those sort of judgments about which filmmakers you think are important and which ones you think are less important. And Saris is certainly doing that in terms of giving you a guide as to who he sees as worthy of your time and who isn't and who should be appreciated and explored in more detail and who shouldn't. So this is perfect. You're going to have Saris on my list. I'm going kale? to have Kale. Love it. <laughs> yeah, not yet, though. Not yet. Okay. At number three, I have Negative Space by Manny Farber. This is the one that Kent Jones actually picked for his list and Ebert's great movies. The first volume is dedicated to Farber, too, among others. 
Farber's been hugely influential. He wrote for the New Republic and the Nation in the 1940s and went on to write for commentary, film culture, and film comment. Negative Space is a compendium of his work. There are single movie reviews here. There are director considerations, festival reports, and a couple of long-form essays. One of those is White Elephant Art versus Termite Art from 1962. This was a, a big influence on me because I, I came to movies, you know, as a kid and also as a lover of genre. And Farber was very much a supporter and champion of genre, too. He preferred it generally over self-important or big idea work. He tended to dismiss stuff that clearly wanted to be regarded as high art. And here's how he described the distinction in that essay. Good work usually arises where the creators, Laurel and Hardy, the team of Howard Hawks and William Faulkner operating on the first half of Raymond Chandler's The Big Sleep, seem to have no ambitions toward guilt culture, but are involved in a kind of squandering beaverish endeavor that isn't anywhere or for anything. A peculiar fact about termite, tapeworm, fungus, moss art is that it goes always forward eating its own boundaries and, likely as not, leaves nothing in its path other than the signs of eager, industrious, unkempt activity. Hmm. So the first time I read that, you know, loved the writing, first of all. That's just great stuff. But it, it made a lot of sense to me, even at, even as I was trying to figure out exactly what he was getting at, the, the instinct there felt right. I'm not saying I, I don't like movies with big ideas, especially when they are artfully explored. But I think maybe this explains a little bit why classics like, you know, 12 Angry Men or To Kill a Mockingbird – can leave me a little bit underwhelmed. Manny Farber, among my regrets when I was putting together this list, critics or writers that I'm just embarrassed to admit, I've never read any of their work. So Farber is definitely up there for me. My number three is A Cinema of Loneliness. This is a book by Robert Kolker, and it sort of follows on the heels of my pick of Pictures at a Revolution and The New Hollywood. These are the directors of the American New Wave, so to speak, and the loneliness of the title refers to some of the themes of these directors' work, but also their independence as filmmakers. They kind of are isolated and outside of that classical Hollywood cinema. The five directors that Kolker first focused on back when the book was originally published in 1980 were Arthur Penn, Stanley Kubrick, Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, and Robert Altman. It's come out in three editions since 88 2000 and 2011 the fourth that's the one i have and in the preface to it kind of contradicting everything i was just talking about with andrew saris kolker points out that an impetus for the update was actually the deaths of arthur penn kubrick and altman and he wonders whether the time of the director is over he says back then he was trying to quote find the artistic personality in the filmic text so i like getting the update as he wrestles with that and his original perspective when he wrote the book but then what he does is he doesn't just add a preface or an introduction here or maybe an epilogue at the end he expands on what he wrote and he infuses new filmmakers that fit into this scheme into this previous scheme so not only do you get expanded takes on kubrick and Altman to encompass their full bodies of work, but you get the films of Steven Spielberg talked about. You get new material on directors like Todd Haynes, even Judd Apatow, Christopher Nolan are included in A Cinema of Loneliness. It's really been a constant resource for me, not only when it comes to this show, but especially as I've been teaching some of those film classes at the University of Chicago's Graham School. If you're looking at the new Hollywood, you have to look at what Kolker says about Arthur Penn and Bonnie and Clyde, and also Scorsese and Mean Streets. Even when we talked about Robert Bresson, and I focused on him a little bit in my last class, which were movies about spiritual crises, 
you got to look at what Kolker says about Taxi Driver and Paul Schrader in relation to Brisson's work. And having now seen Todd Haynes's Carol, it makes me want to dust off this book and see what his take on Todd Haynes is. Unfamiliar to me, so I'll have to add that one to my list. My Kale pick is here at number two, and it's Four Keeps. Kale's probably not my favorite critic, but I think she's my favorite to read, if that distinction makes any sense. I I feel like the older I get, the the more I question her taste, just the movies that she finds to be the best and champions. But man, the writing craft, that's that's always going to stand. And that's what I first really appreciated about her work. For Keeps is a compilation, so it's drawn from her other books, previous books, and her New Yorker pieces. It's a 1,200-page beast, so you'll be making your way through this over a long time. But just about everything is in here, including her infamous immediate reaction to Bertolucci's Last Tango in Paris, which I think was at a New York Film Festival screening. Here's what she said. There was something almost like fear in the atmosphere of the party in the lobby that followed the screening. Carried along by the sustained excitement of the movie, the audience had given Bertolucci an ovation. But afterward, as individuals... They were quiet. This must be the most powerfully erotic movie ever made, and it may turn out to be the most liberating movie ever made. And so it's probably only natural that an audience anticipating a voluptuous feast from the man who made The Conformist and confronted with this unexpected sexuality and the new realism it requires of the actors should go into shock. Bertolucci and Brando have altered the face of an art form. Now, we might not agree with that assessment of Last Tango or looking back now on its influence necessarily, But what writing to set the mood of that experience and her immediate reaction and make her case? I I often feel that my best days as a critic are when I encounter a movie that makes me feel just a little bit of the passion that Pauline Kael was able to bring to her writing. And, man, you get a lot of that in Four Keeps. So Kael, I have read, but only selected reviews over the years. I never have actually purchased a book that features all of her work. My number two is a book that focuses on one filmmaker. And like Truffaut with Hitchcock, it's the book that basically set the trend for reanalysis and appreciation of Howard Hawks as an auteur. Since its original publication in 1972, the book is Howard Hawks by Robin Wood. It addresses Hawks' work by assembling the movies into categories. So you get chapters on self-respect and responsibility, the lure of irresponsibility, the group, male relationships. These are all the themes that really identify Hawks's personality that comes through in his work. They are the themes that run throughout his work. And, of course, some people may be listening, Josh, thinking, well, why do I care about this book if I don't care about Howard Hawks? My first response is, well, you should care about Howard Hawks. <laughs> Rio Bravo, Only Angels Have Wings, His Girl Friday, those films are masterpieces. And Robin Wood will make you appreciate those films even more, but he'll also compel you to at least reckon with the ones that aren't universally adored. Even if you don't care about Hawks, his take on Hawks' films, though, should still influence your understanding of cinema. And I think the section on Rio Bravo in particular is fascinating because he focuses on how it is embedded within these conventions of the Western, but how it also separates itself from those movies, how Hawks places the camera and his reliance on action to convey plot and emotion. And he does all that without ever losing sight of just how much damn fun Rio Bravo is. So even as it gets a little academic, and you think maybe he's taking a film like Rio Bravo a little bit too seriously, he acknowledges that. And he says at the end of the day, it's all of these things working together that really make it the masterpiece it is. So when you have someone like Wood really drawing out what makes that film so good, 
it won't just change your sense of the movie Rio Bravo, but it really will, as I was saying, change your sense of what a good director does on screen. All right. You're going to accuse me, I think, of having a cheat here at number one because it's uh, a compendium, not just of one critic, but a whole bunch of them. Okay, It's American Movie Critics from Philip Lopate. And this is his attempt to anthologize the best of American film criticism from the very beginning of the art form going through about 2008. So I think about, you know, there's dozens of critics represented here over some 100 years. The range is amazing. You have early giants like Otis Ferguson and James A.G., all the way through to talented contemporaries like A.O. Scott Manola Dargis at the New York Times and also Nathan Lee. The early stuff is really fascinating. You can read the likes of Hugo Munsterberg or Vakal Lindsay trying to make sense of this this new art form at the time and the possibilities of writing about it. You can see them trying to figure out how do we actually write about this new thing, which is kind of cool. There's also some amazing curiosities. If you've ever wondered what poet Carl Sandburg made of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, it's in here. I didn't even know that existed. So if your budget doesn't quite allow to, you know, pick up 10 books, all these 10 books that we're talking about, maybe start here. It's a pretty comprehensive place to get going. And to soften the cheating a little bit, I'd also recommend Lopate's Totally, Tenderly, Tragically. That's a collection of his own critical essays. Those are very good as well. That's another one I need to check out. For my number one, I'm going to try to follow what I was saying about Rio Bravo and Howard Hawks and lighten things up a little bit as these books that I've been sharing maybe sound a little bit stuffy. How about a piece of fiction about the movies. I don't know if you can call it a cheat, but we'll see if yeah, you buy I don't it or know if not. That counts. This is a book by Bud Schulberg, who people will know as the writer of On the Waterfront, the screenwriter of that great Elia Kazan movie. And it's a book I had never even heard of back in 1991 or so when I was taking a college class. It was just like a week-long kind of seminar class about film. And the instructor was a Grinnell College alum who is the artistic director of the Long Wharf Theater, Gordon Edelstein. And he just said randomly one day, what makes Sammy run? If you haven't read that book, you have to read it. It's the greatest book ever written about Hollywood. So, of course, the next thing I did was run out to a bookstore and buy it. And I haven't read it again, Josh, since 1991. But it's fascinating. It is a satire, of course, this insider's take on Hollywood. He grew up as the son of B.P. Schulberg, who ran Paramount Pictures in the 1930s, was kind of known for discovering Clara Bow. And so as the son of B.P. Schulberg, he had this perspective on, well, what the machinations of Hollywood really were and the way you kind of have to sacrifice your soul and your integrity really a little bit in order to succeed. The character, the title character, Sammy, isn't someone who really has any integrity. He's not the narrator of the story, but the narrator is introduced to Sammy Glick very early on. And throughout this book and throughout Sammy's rise up the ladder through Hollywood, the narrator is trying to answer the question, what makes him run? What literally makes him move faster than everyone else? But of course, on a more figurative level, what is driving him? And it really becomes not just a story of these characters, a story of Hollywood, but a story of the American experience and the American dream and this sense of ambition at all cost and individualism and the toll that it can take. And it took a toll on Schulberg as well. He actually became sort of an outsider then in Hollywood after this point because of the response to it. And over the years, there's been lots of talk about trying to bring it to the screen. I think maybe the best thing you can say about a book about Hollywood, a truly great book about Hollywood, is that 
it can't be filmed. No one has found a way to really bring Sammy Glick to the screen. It's been on television a couple times, apparently like in 1949 and 1959, and it was a Broadway play. Ben Stiller, yeah, DreamWorks apparently bought it a few years ago, and there was talk of Ben Stiller playing, I'm assuming, the narrator, not Sammy Glick, who is much younger, but it's never come to fruition, and I don't expect it to anytime soon. With all the love I've been sharing over recent months for the You Must Remember This podcast, where Karina Longworth dives into these secret stories or these forgotten stories about old Hollywood, I wonder if she's ever talked about Bud Schulberg. And if she hasn't, I'm putting it out there right now on the record as a listener suggestion for an episode because I'd love to learn more about not only his upbringing in Hollywood, but the writing of what makes Sammy run and then the fallout from it. And of course, even later in life, he was blacklisted because of some dealings he did actually have with the Communist Party. And apparently he did at one point name names for the House Un-American Activities Committee. So there's a lot of drama here with Bud Schulberg, and there's a lot of great drama in what makes Sammy run. Well, if, if you'll allow me my number one, I'll allow you that one. Deal. Those are our top five movie books. Again, somewhere down the road, we're probably going to revisit this topic and really focus on movie books that are written by filmmakers, whether they're directors or producers or screenwriters or, of course, actors or actresses. There's some very good books written by editors as well. In fact, I know one of my top five will be by a film editor and sound designer. Do you have any other honorable mentions, though, you want to sneak in right now? Yeah, I'm going to give you really quick another five. Placing Movies is Jonathan Rosenbaum's critical memoir. It's about growing up in small-town Alabama in the 1950s. His family owned and managed a chain of theaters there. Real Spirituality. This is a foundational text from Fuller Seminary's Robert K. Johnston on how to approach films theologically. That's informed a lot of the film writing I do at Think Christian. David Thompson, I love his Have You Seen? This is a different sort of canon collection. There are personal essays here on 1,000 films. I'd also recommend his biographical dictionary film. That's more for research probably than general reading. James A.G., if you want to become more familiar with the legendary Time and Nation critic, he was also a novelist and screenwriter. A.G. on film is a nice collection. And then Molly Haskell's From Reverence to Rape. That's a great example of 1970s feminist film criticism. Well, I already snuck in. Andre Bazan and What is Cinema, but I'll also mention the Film Genre Reader 2, edited by Barry Keith Grant. And I do love this because it's a compendium of different articles, obviously really focusing on different film genres. But for me, it was so formative because of John Coelty's essay on film noir, Notes on Film Noir, and Paul Schrader's great essay, Chinatown and Generic Transformation. You really can't fully appreciate, I don't think anyway, Chinatown or movies like The Long Goodbye if you don't get Schrader's perspective in those essays. Film art, Bordwell and Thompson, I mean, it is the film 101 textbook for a reason. And you mentioned Roger Ebert, whether it's life itself, his autobiography, or going back through some of those books like The Great Movies. I'll mention one of his movie home companions. I've talked about it on the show before, I think back when Ebert passed away. For me, I can date myself by it, of course, because it was 1992, 17 years old. I had the 1992 Roger Ebert home movie companion, and that was that thing that got dog-eared that I brought everywhere. I'd go to music rehearsal or something, and I had that with me. And when I had a free moment, I would open it up and read some review. And so really, every sense I have of film criticism or what a film review is comes from watching Siskel and Ebert on TV and then reading those written essays in that home companion. I, of course, enjoy Peter Biskin's Easy Riders and Raging Bulls and John Pearson's Spike, Mike, Slacker, and Dykes as well, the book really about the birth of the American independent cinema that started in the 1980s with some of those Spike Lee films, 
Richard Linklater's Slacker, of course, Jim Jarmusch and his movies as well. Again, those are our top five film books. Send us your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. Or you can leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. We're on Twitter at Filmspotting. That's Adam. I'm at Larson on Film. You can also find us at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 10 years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. While you're there, take a moment and vote in the current film spotting poll. We're asking you to name your favorite film of 2015. And if you're listening on the radio or are not a subscriber to the podcast this week, we also posted a Hitchcock blind spotting review. It's one recommended by Kent Jones in our interview earlier in the show. The Wrong Man, we had not seen it. We have now seen it. We discussed it. It's a film starring Henry Fonda. You can find that discussion at filmspotting.net or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes. Out in wide release this weekend, Krampus. It's a Christmas movie, right? Now, yeah, I think it's like Santa Monster. Okay. And I'm curious why this wasn't suggested when Sam, our co-producer, was bouncing around ideas for what we could review. Why didn't he bring up Krampus? Maybe because he knows that I will cower in the corner of the theater. In limited release, opening here in Chicago, James White, Janice, Little Girl Blue, Office, and Chirac. Next week, we are planning to discuss Spike Lee's latest Chirac and share our top five discoveries of 2015. I guess that's a little more deserving than Krampus. It might be. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogeren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week, it's from Ryan Adams' album, 1989. More information is at paxamrecords.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Danny? Sandy? I thought you went back to Australia. We had a change of plans. Well, that's cool, baby. You know, rocking and rolling and whatnot. <laughs> that's what he says. That's a line of dialogue in that movie. That's cool, baby. You know, rocking and rolling and whatnot. I use that all the time. I know. Just if someone asks you what you've been up to. Wait a minute. Set the scene again. So you and your friend are at a high school football game? We used to love the game? No, no. They are. Tossing they are in the forth? movie. Oh, they are in the okay, movie. Okay. No, we just love to say that whenever people would ask us, like, what we were doing, we would act like dorky Danny Zuko. It paid off now today for that performance. It did. I hope. I hope people appreciated it. (laughs) 